Hey, this is episode 74 of Future Chat from Unwind Media. I'm joined today by Nick Maddox, who is sometimes here, sometimes not, and Mike Cottrell, my always here co-host. How are you guys <laughs> doing today? I'm always great. <laughs> Glad to hear it. I'm in a silly mood in which I really just want to talk like this into the mic. I hope you can hold that for the entire hour to two hour time period. I highly doubt I will. <laughs> oh man. All right. We have, uh, we have quite a bit of stuff to talk about today. Mike, what I'm going to do is just jump right into follow-up and today the follow-up belongs to you. So why don't you uh, take us off with, uh, with more Windows news? Yeah, there's a couple of Windows items here. I was surprised at how quickly this came up. And last night I was actually looking into it a bit more. And my original take on this was, oh, it's good to see that other people are taking lessons from the Surface Book and making more versatile devices such as a tablet laptop hybrid where you kind of make use of the keyboard as well as the screen uh, peripheral to house performance tools or parts, I guess. In this case, both Dell and Toshiba released some quote-unquote two-in-one convertible laptops. But after reading what the devices actually are, they seem to be more comparable to the Surface versus the Surface Book. Um, where the keyboard doesn't actually do anything other than just type, as in it doesn't have any processor or battery or anything like that in it. Okay. At, at least as far as what I could gather from the uh, admittedly limited specs that are available right now. But even a couple of the articles that I looked up as kind of additional research refer to them, like compared them more to the Surface Pro and call them convertible tablets versus convertible laptops mm, makes sense um, yeah it, it's weird to me that these are coming up these are getting announced like within a week or two of yeah the surface but i guess they're it's that time of year and they're they're gearing up to yeah. do it anyways well and i think they're taking advantage of the surface book hype so that these might even be seen as comparable to it even though they're not because the surface book is fairly different in how it does use a keyboard to house that second processor and mm -hmm. additional battery. So I think as a consumer, you want to be aware of what exactly you're comparing against performance-wise and value. Because if you're pricing these on that premium level that the Surface Book is, but they don't have the same type of performance, then you don't want to be trying to compare apples to oranges that way. Because right. if, if they're trying to sell themselves as a cheaper version of the Surface Book, that's not a fair comparison because you're not getting the same type of device. Hmm. So that's, yeah, that's true. So, so that was, I guess the follow-up is that these got announced, which is good, but they're playing off of more of the laptop form factor versus the performance aspect that the surface book offers. So, um, yeah. yeah. So I guess it'll be interesting to see what other companies kind of follow up that service book. The second one was, I was actually proud of myself for kind of calling this because we saw Apple come out with their uh, iPhone upgrade program. And then we saw, we referenced Fido having their lease to own or payment plan for their LG tablet. Yeah. And now there is news ZTE. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of them or not, but they're one of those kind of uh, per, the tangential Asian 
kind of manufacturers that are bigger over in Asia versus yeah. North America, but they still have some stuff here. But they announced a lease to own payment plan as well. And not only just for smartphones and tablets, but for stuff like projectors as well. Oh. So pretty much any sort of hardware you could buy from ZTE, you have six to 24 month payment plans for it. And they even have an upgrade program as well. Uh, so if you if you pay out your contract, like the 6 to 24 month lease agreement, then you own it. But any time during that payment period, you can return your device, even if it's used, obviously, and get the other device that you want without paying any sort of penalty or anything like that. Hmm. So it's it seems fairly flexible for this person who wants to kind of upgrade but may not know what they want to upgrade to. Where you might just, you know, if you're up to date on your payments, you can just trade it in and get a different device. So it's it's interesting it's, to see people go that way. Yeah, it's pretty much what we anticipated after seeing both the iPhone upgrade as well as that FIDO initiative. And I I don't know, like I said, personally, I think it's good to see more flexible payment options. Um it's it's only a matter of time before you start seeing actual big box stores like Best Buy. Uh, offering these types of plans as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you already see hardware stores doing it with their, you know, zero down, zero interest, you know, 24 month payment plans for, you know, you buy a deck from them kind of thing, because a lot of people can't pay, you know, a couple thousand bucks up front for a deck, but they'll pay it out over two years. So I think electronics is kind of the next logical step in offering that type of plan. Right. So the the thing that's most interesting to to me is that sort of you have your hardcore early adopter person who's going to buy a new phone every year, no matter what they announce. There tends to be more of those from Apple, but there there are people like that with Android phones as well. But then you also have what I'm going to call not necessarily Luddites, but curmudgeons that are going to hold on to their phones until there literally is no room to install new apps. Their, Their phones are slow and they're kind of, not going to admit it and nick i think you fall in this category but i'm specifically referring i was to gonna him. say do you want to just like <laughs> sp- specifically call me out here uh no i mean it's fine I, there's nothing wrong with it but i you're think you're just that- a curmudgeon nick like that's that's how i know we, that's how i know you we we all know I'm, you we all love you and you're a curmudgeon that's just how it is i, I was referring specifically to amon in that he's been very he's very able to get a new phone and he just refuses to and I'm I'm interested to see how someone like that, and I'm going to use you in this example because you're here. Does this kind of leasing thing where you can just trade in your phone, does that interest you at all? Would you get a new phone if that were a thing you were do you could do? Um I don't know. Like I've the phone for me isn't what a phone is for you. Yeah. Like I do play games on my phone. And there is that aspect of entertainment, but I feel like you really get your kicks off, you know, having a new phone, playing with it, finding out what its capacity or its capabilities are, you know, what the new functionality is, how this UI works, yada, 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 yada. Yeah. But, and then, so I could see that working very well for someone like you or people with just a lot of money who don't want to be seen carrying around some year old piece of equipment yeah but i don't know for me it's more a phone yeah that's fair it's i i don't know that i would 
invest that heavily uh, in it unless there was the possibility possibility that everything would be significantly discounted. So if it was like if this leasing program lowered the total cost of ownership of any individual phone I had, then maybe I could kind of see it, but okay. That's fair. I my approach to it because I I fairly regularly consider or at least analyze what is available from a phone or device perspective and see if it makes sense to upgrade. But my Nexus 4, the same phone that, that Nick and I think Amon has it too? No, Amon has a Galaxy S2X. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. My. <laughs> okay. So either way, um, the Nexus 4 is, you know, a good quality phone. It's at this point, I think three years old now, going on three next April or May. And it's slowing down, admittedly. It's on its last upgrade uh, operating system-wise. This uh, lollipop that it has now is the last one it's getting, or it has already. Um, so, sure, I could use a new phone, but A, I really like my phone. So unless I was going to get kind of another Nexus, I don't think I'd probably get a different phone, or, or maybe a Windows phone, just for the difference. Mm-hmm. But for me it's it just it still works like i have i have room for apps it still runs perfectly fine it you know crashes occasionally it random shuts randomly shuts off but for me it's livable it's not a hindrance to me on a daily basis and i think for people there's some people and amon might be a good example of this kind of person but they're kind of tech hipsters where yeah. it's like it's like, Mike, I don't do you have a ghost one. in your house? I, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what's what's over there. It, it seems like there might be. For those listening, <laughs> Mike's door is just inexplicably moving behind him. I, there's also a human figure that was doing it, so I don't think there's a ghost. I, I can't it tell. Was, I saw I a white, a white ghostly figure. So, yeah. okay, it, it may be a ghost. Yet, we are as yet uncertain. <laughs> I'll keep you guys updated. Um, <laughs> Mike, did you just feel a chill? Uh, I did. There's, <laughs> it's a very haunting chill. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Going back to what I was saying about, about tech hipsters, I think people take pride in not needing the newest stuff and they're like, oh, I don't need data. Oh, I don't need this. Like, it's the same people who say, oh, I don't have a TV or, oh, I yeah. don't have a car. Like, okay, that works for you. But you're just, you're inconveniencing, you're inconveniencing yourself needlessly, in, in my opinion. I think so too, yeah. But So um, Amon is the the person who is going to not only keep the Galaxy S2X, even though it has very obvious deficiencies for him, but he doesn't have a data plan for it. <laughs> and he, he admits like with a straight face, he's like, I could go back to my, he used to have my, the Motorola Razor. <laughs> and he's like, I could go back to that in a heartbeat. No problem. And yeah. so it, so for, for him, I don't think that it's necessarily something that he's really worried about, even though I'm certain he could get, he would be much more happy with a modern smartphone. Like the, the old Samsung interface where you have like, everything is either bright green or black, like shades of green or yellow. That interface is just, so ugly um 
but so for me like you were saying nick uh i it's it's not even that i'm unhappy with my phone it's that i don't care about the phone i have now i care about having the latest phone like i want the speed upgrades i want the camera upgrades i'm not attached to the phone i have i'm attached to having the best possible phone and so for me that's worth a few hundred dollars a year if that's what it costs to upgrade that sounds about right yeah and and not everyone feels that way i'm in the minority for sure but that's just how it is if i get a new phone i i might try out the ubuntu operating system on this phone just to see what that's like i knew you would say that you had an old one just just see what it's see what it's all about you know yeah i get it i don't get it by the way uh i get it nick yeah i don't get it i don't what are you trying to tell me rob i'm saying i don't understand you at all yeah why would why would i want to try out some interesting new tech on a phone that's just no. crazy after what you said so what I, what i'm thinking completely is completely backwards the reason that ubuntu are you thinking to you, rob are you thinking i am thinking. is that what's happening okay ubuntu appeals to you on a phone because you wouldn't have to upgrade it because it people run linux on older hardware that they know they're not going to have to want to or they're not going to need to upgrade as often like with windows and with mac you tend to there, there's the sort of common thought that as the technology advances it runs a lot slower and it with a lot less capability on older hardware but linux ubuntu especially doesn't really have those kinds of limitations it might get a little bit slower but it's certainly nowhere near the slowing that you'd find with windows and and mac no that's not that's not the appeal for me on a on a phone it's just that i've never actually had a phone with the ubuntu operating system on it and i would like to see what that's all about okay I go for it. I I applaud that exploration. Let us know how it goes. That's not how it goes. No, let us know how it goes. Oh, okay. I thought you were like, yeah, that's great, Nick. But that's not what happens. It's like, (laughs) okay. All right. So uh, at this point, I think we should probably move on. And there's a bunch of plant. Well, at least two planet news stories that came out this week, and so. I found I I actually didn't hear about this other exoplanet that was was discovered. But what I did see, um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but apparently there was a planet that was the Kepler telescope that's looking out looking for exoplanets discovered um, a planet that causes that caused a dip in brightness of the its its parent star by about 20 percent. Oh, wow. So. The normal, a normal huge, like sort of Jupiter-sized planet causes about a one percent dip in brightness, and they're noticing it this twenty percent dip in brightness. And basically, everyone on the internet who isn't a scientist working on the project is like, "Wait, is it aliens? Are we? Is this a Dyson sphere?" Like, they're trying to come up with something that would explain this massive, like twenty times larger than normal dip in brightness. And I just, so did you guys hear about the story first of all? I saw people talking about a Dyson sphere on Twitter about a couple of days ago, I think, or maybe a week ago. And I was wondering what it was about. I never looked into it, but people kept talking about a Dyson sphere. So I, I'm familiar with the idea of a Dyson sphere, 
but I don't know why we were talking about it, but this kind of puts some context into it. Yeah. So at I first, did not hear about it. Okay. At first I was just, I, like, I, I saw the headline and I was just like, okay, whatever people are weird. But this, this is a really interesting thing because so there's this dip in brightness and common explanations for something like this don't really apply. And people on like people looking at the original story saying, oh, it's probably aliens are quick to say, like, if it was a Dyson sphere that was the, the, the idea of a Dyson sphere is basically the outer portion of a planet or the outer portion of a star uh, would be surrounded by solar panels or some kind of energy collection device to collect a whole, like a large percentage of the energy that comes out of a star and basically harvested for use by a very advanced civilization, a civilization that's much more advanced than ours. And yes, space. Um, And, but the thing that you would get when you have that kind of setup with solar panels is that they wouldn't be able to absorb all the heat and convert to electricity or to all the energy and convert to electricity. So you'd end up with really, really hot. And this, a Dyson sphere would glow really hot in the infrared. And you're not seeing that with this dip in, in brightness. It's a very, it's a cold dip. It's not, not IR active. And so really there aren't a lot of good explanations, but what it's, what this exoplanet is going to do is make us have to kind of rethink and reconsider what could cause this kind of thing. It, it, this is the first time where we saw an exoplanet that caught, or it's not even necessarily an exoplanet at this point, but whatever caused this 20% dip, it, we have no explanation for it currently. And so that's why I thought it was kind of interesting in that it could be another civilization, but it's very unlikely to be one in the way that we think of what a, what a civilization would look like. Space. So is the current status is there's no explanation for it right now? There's no good explanation for it right now. There, so, there are a bunch of different ones. So the idea, so have they ruled out that the planet is just that big? Like gravitationally yes. is probably, if it would violate orbit. Like if it was that big and it caused yeah. that much of a dip in brightness. I, I feel like it would be, e- it would either be a, a star itself, like a brown dwarf or something. And that would also glow in the infrared. Like a dual or, star yeah. system? Okay. Right. And so it just, like I've heard people talking about it could be just a dust um, field that somehow isn't uh, isn't really visible in the infrared. But something about the, di- the dynamics of the system make it seem like that's not really a possibility. But really what it means is we're going to have to investigate it more. Okay. Have they ruled out there being a spider on the lens of the telescope? Ah, uh, yes, I think they have. They just checked that and okay. definitely not a spider. I, I don't know if you guys heard, but when it was hashtag AB smoke week here. Oh, I did there hear was about a, that. There was like a smoke detector sensor thing that that detected the smog level. Yeah. And they detected it as like really, really high, like dangerously high. And they're like, oh, wait, there's a spider on there. Never mind. So that that's why it was reading such high levels. So, are spiders smoggy? Well, it was a light sensor, right? So it it was oh, covering okay. up the sensor that it just went off the charts. So makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but 
But so basically what this, this news has just come out, this discovery from the, the Kepler telescope or the Kepler observation. I don't know if it's actually literally a telescope or it's just a spectrometer, but it's going to need more research and we're going to hear more about it. But I just thought it was really interesting to just the fact that it so far it could be aliens is, is awesome. Yeah. So in stark contrast to what this could be, we do have a spectacular confirmation in the world of science here on earth. What's that? Is it a confirmation or an agreement? I'm assuming uh, you're segueing into something. Tomato, tomato. The kilogram has joined the ranks <laughs> of the meter and the second in that they can be defined by physical constants. They have been defined by physical I'm just, constants. I'm just waiting for the applause and yeah. Okay. There we go. You got it. Good. Yep. <laughs> How are you guys not more excited about this? Well, tell us more about it, Nick. Yeah. Get us excited. I shouldn't have to get you excited about this. The kilogram. The kilogram has finally been defined. It, okay. 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 <laughs> so the meter. The meter is defined by the... Speed of light and stuff. The speed of light in exactly one two hundred ninety nine. 299... Uh, thousand seven hundred twenty eight thousand six hundred anyway <laughs> that of a second yeah and the second likewise is defined by uh, the oscillation of oscillation of a cesium atom. Oh, yeah oscillation of a cesium 137 atom and it's hyperfinite something states and so, or wait, no. I think it's also defined based on light details. No, uh, no. It's, anyway, it's an oscillation. Yeah, it's definitely cesium one thirty seven. Yeah. Okay. Details. <laughs> so, if you break down every single unit in physics, it comes down to kilograms, meters, and seconds. And kilograms, if you're doing science properly. <laughs> Yes, that that was yeah. the hidden assumption there. <laughs> but so everything can be broken down to kilograms, meters, and seconds in various ratios and exponents, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. But there was egg on the face of science. A big, embarrassing lump of platinum iridium alloy residing in France. Because... So the meter in the second behaved well. It behaved great. But the first kilogram they made was a lump of platinum iridium alloy. And so they made a bunch of copies. They sent it around the world. Canada has one. The States has a few. Yada, yada, yada. And then something odd happened. Despite all the precautions, despite everything that you do to handle this this lump of metal properly the kilogram in france started shrinking mm -hmm. and it was getting lighter faster than the copies that had been made <laughs> and so that was a cause of concern 
Because if you if you define all of physics based off of this lump of metal that is shrinking, that's not good. Yeah. It's just, it's not good. So what they did was they started, they started out on a project to try and redefine the kilogram. And one group was doing, that was the, the subject of Veritasium's video, the world's roundest object. Yeah. That was a sphere of silicon 28, 38, something like that. Okay. Anyway, all one isotope of silicon, perfect circle. But they knew exactly how many atoms were in it and exactly what its mass was. And that was going to be the definition for the kilogram. So it's going to be X number of silicon atoms in that specific isotope of silicon. And at the same time, two other groups were trying to define the kilogram based on a different method. And one was trying to use Planck's constant. I'm not exactly sure how, but there was a problem guys. What was the yeah. problem, Nick? Well, the problem <laughs> who was that was the <laughs> <a> ghost <laughs> ghost. Yeah, definitely ghost. <laughs> so spooky episode. They tried to define the kilogram in several different ways as a prudent scientific group would, and it wasn't getting good agreement, which is concerning. Yeah. Because then you look across all the experiments you're doing and go, uh, this should all come out to one kilogram, but, um, it's not. And, uh, yeah. So they were looking at it and like throwing up their hands and going, maybe we'll just like average these three measurements, which is a terrible idea because the whole idea behind science is that you should be able to reproduce these things regardless of where you are, or what you're doing. Yeah. So like if you really wanted to and had all the equipment available, you should be able to figure out the meter in the second. If you were just lost on a desert Island with an obscene amount of scientific equipment. And so finally, finally, some group figured out what they were doing wrong and they have come to an agreement on the kilogram. So now, finally, finally, the kilogram is defined based on physical constants and not a lump of metal residing in France. Pausing again for applause. (laughs) How how is this not more exciting to you? I have a question. Why didn't we just stick with the definition of, you know, the X number of atoms of whatever? Because it didn't agree with the other measurements. But who cares? That's why you just come up with one ultimate measurement. Then all who the cares, can suck Mike? It. The foundation and- of all physics and thus science in general, who cares how we define it? No, I didn't That's mean That's what that you're way. saying. That's what I'm hearing. That's why you come up with one definitive definition, and that's the standard. You just call it that. Everything else can be an approximation to that. Just be like, yeah, that. no, this is like good enough, whatever. I'm I don't care that enough. we can't you know, figure it out based on Planck's constant over there. It'll just work fine. I'm sure if, of it. If you had engineers don't running worry about it, it guys. if you had engineers running it, they'd say, yep, good enough. And that's why they are the <laughs> Oompa Loompas of science. <laughs> Nick, the the meter used to be defined 
as, as a stick some... because we got ri- and we got rid of it because that was a terrible idea. That that at one time, but it also used to be defined as like it was something like one nine millionth the distance from the North Pole to the equator, <laughs> which of course doesn't change either. In, well, depending on the units you use, I was one ten thousand in meters of the distance from the North Pole to the equator passing through Paris because, of yeah. course, they would do that. <laughs> I was using meters, you were using kilometers, but it all works out the same. They're, They're a thousandth. Ten thousand. Factor, factor of a thousand mile. Whatever Wait, it is. What was it, kilometers or meters? Ten thousand <laughs> meters? We're, we're talking no, about that's meters, not so. it at all. Ten thousand kilometers. Let's go with that. Yeah. But uh, so it's not always a perfect definition, but I think using a, an atomic number of something is is probably the best we're going to get. That's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad Rob agrees with me on this. Yeah. But if you define it that way and then you're off based on Planck's constant, what does that say to you? No, uh, of course. Of course. But like the we we use the carbon 12 to define what a, mo- a mole is like. Twelve. It's exactly twelve grams if you're if you're using carbon twelve, and then everything else varies based on that. Like you can set once you set on a certain number of silicon atoms. The yeah, only but the thing, mole isn't nearly as fundamental a unit of measure. Well, according to who? Yeah. <laughs> really, according it's to based who. on kilograms. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the basically what you're saying is. Planck's constant varying can change the number of silicon atoms that would make up a kilogram as we know it now. Is that what you're saying? I'm saying they were trying to they were trying to define the kilogram based on Planck's constant somehow. Mm-hmm. But then the kilogram they had didn't agree with Planck's constant that they had, which is a problem. Yeah. Because if it's not matching up, then you've clearly done something wrong and you don't have a kilogram. Right. Or you just you're gonna have to rewrite all the constants, all of them. All like, of yeah, all the ones that are based on kilograms. Sorry, previous thousands of years of science. You oh, can just thousands. go back and rewrite all that. Maybe hundreds. They will have a a pre twenty fifteen conversion factor. <laughs> right. So are the I'm, figures you're working with pre twenty fifteen? Apply this conversion factor, please. Because it's I'm, off. I'm, I'm curious, do they always use like if you're if you're making a measurement of the kilogram and it's changing because it's based on a lump of metal, does that like wouldn't that vary the weight of a kilogram from year to year? Ostensibly, it, yes, and that's the problem. Right. So is is the error they're having still is it more than that margin of error or is it less than that margin of error? Because we've been dealing with a changing well, kilogram. Not, they don't have that problem anymore, apparently. Like they have oh. good agreement now. Oh, good. Yes. No error. If you assemble that many silicon atoms now in that specific isotope, you will have a kilogram. Okay. So at this point, the final thing they did do does involve that sphere of silicon. It agrees with the two other experiments. Okay. Good. I'm not going to applaud, but I'm satisfied with that. So the top story this week was, hey, we thought maybe there were aliens, but it turns out that's probably not true. But we're still not sure what caused this star to go slightly darker. That was your top story. Yeah. 
And story number two is this fundamental measure in all of physics and all of science is finally defined in physical constant terms. You're like, "Eh, Nick, this story needs to be, this show needs to be entertaining. We have aliens on one hand, aliens question mark. You don't have aliens. That was the point of your story. (laughs) Question mark, Nick. Aliens dot, dot, dot. Nobody cares about the kilogram. Speaking of Mars. Yeah. Oh, do you have another fluff piece for us, Mike? (laughs) Something else about maybe sort of kind of aliens? No. Oh, good. This is even cooler than aliens, in my opinion. Was the movie in 3D, Mike? Was it? It was. It was Did you get the goggles? I did. I sat at the very back, too. It was great. So... (laughs) Rob, Did they been... have a binocular camera to use for the 3D filming, <laughs> I... or was it algorithmic? Okay, I was... These are the details people want to know! Nick, Nick gets so loud when he's silly. <laughs> I was considering trying to film Ooh. the movie through the goggles with my phone camera, but I didn't get around to doing it. Interesting. To see if that would work. Yeah. Anyway, we're talking <laughs> about The Martian. Rob, you've been repping this movie... For a bit, I've been repping the announced. story. Yeah, I know. That's what I mean. You rep yeah. the book and then said, hey, it's a movie. So I went to go see it last night. Well, to be more accurate, myself and Rhea went. And it was an amazing movie. I very much enjoyed it. It was heart-wrenching. It was breathtaking. It was, it was a great movie. I applauded at the end. No one else did. <laughs> that's a different story. Yeah, that's okay, though. I think. Now I, I've heard that potatoes are prominently featured in the Martian. Yes. Is this poop true? potatoes? Poop potatoes poop are prominently. Potatoes. Well, poop potatoes. All potatoes are poop potatoes. This one is so a different you know. kind of poop potato. <laughs> but yeah, poop no, it's. <laughs> it was, what it do was you a, mean? All potatoes are poop potatoes. It's fertilizer. That's. Well, not all fertilizer is poop. Well, most Some of it. But poop is a very good fertilizer. fertilizer. Yeah. So. Rob, you you said you wanted to talk about this today. What did you want to talk about? Really, I wanted. I wasn't sure at the time if Nick had seen the movie or read the book, but I assumed he had done neither. And you assumed correctly. Yeah. And so I think what we should do is maybe discuss... Because, Mike, you haven't read the book. You've just no. seen the movie. Yeah. And so I have seen... I've done both of those activities. And... So I don't think there's really any reason to go too much into detail on differences between the book and the movie because I'll be the only one discussing them. Um, I don't think there's necessarily – Nick doesn't want spoilers because apparently at some point he's going to do one of those two things, either read it or see it. But uh, I have one thing that I wanted to to specifically point out. But Mike, why don't you start with – with some of the points, because I had stuff to talk about with the points you'd you'd written down here. So why don't you go through them, and then I can bounce back to you. Okay. What I thought. What I heard about this movie prior to viewing it was how scientifically accurate it was. Maybe that was within the context of it being a Hollywood movie. Mm-hmm. I don't. I'm not familiar enough with astrophysics or any of that to see the more minute details. They might have gotten correct or wrong that you know say uh neil degrasse tyson or bill nye would would be able to pick up um but i found uh, with a lot of these types of sci-fi movies i'm going through the entire movie and be like what how how did they no what how did that happen (laughs) i didn't feel 
I had to do that at any part. And right. that, that wasn't even with me keeping in mind it was accurate. Like, I just had no point did I feel that they did anything beyond my belief. Mm-hmm. Um, it was plausible. It was plausible. With, again, with my fairly limited scope of astronomical, astrophysical yeah. knowledge. The, the one thing I think was more of a stretch to me was how uh, Matt Damon, I'll use his actor name because yeah. I know his name was Mark. I can't remember his last name. Watney. Watney, yeah. How he he had to ration his food because he was obviously stranded there. And it didn't seem that he was having much trouble functioning with that type of diet. Like there's various parts of the movie where you kind of see what he's eating and how, how limited it is. And he's still able to do a bunch of different stuff. And with how many, uh, how many kilograms of food did he have? (laughs) I don't know. It varies. They, they define it differently on Mars. That's crazy. It would probably depend on (laughs) the the gravity. Well, no, that that would be, that would 90% of Earth. That would be weight, not mass. That's true. Sorry. How many? Yeah, I asked how many kilograms. Yeah, not how much. I think the kilogram on Mars is defined as one one thousandth a mole of potatoes. I think. Mm. That's Um, absolutely accurate. No, that would. I think you're thinking newtons then. (laughs) Or we're just being silly. One of the two. Yeah, it could be. Are we ever silly on this show? That was the only part that I kind of had trouble buying, but it didn't get in the way of my enjoyment of the movie at all. It was more just a comedic relief of that part. The other part I liked was just the space sequences and how realistic it it was. Like they had one sequence where it was, they were docking a thruster pod type thing onto the ship that they're on. And it was just very, I don't know. It was surreal. That sequence. I think you know what I'm talking about, Rob. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like both Maria and myself like looked at each other like, wow, this is like amazing. Just, and I again, I don't know how realistic that sequence was, but my understanding of how docking works, it it looked fairly realistic. Like, yeah, I could believe that that's how it happens. Yeah. Um, and then the other part was gravity. Their ship had sections where it wasn't doing any sort of rotation, where they were kind of in in zero gravity, and then parts that it rotated and created a artificial gravity for the the astronauts. And it, that to to me, that's a plausible way to simulate gravity if you're on a spaceship. Yeah, that's how you would yeah. do it. Yeah, but from I, Maria was asking me about this before, but they don't have that on the space station, right? They don't have any sort of simulated gravity no. on there. No, so they have a treadmill that you can strap yourself yeah. down on. But yeah, yeah, I remember seeing videos of the treadmill, and yeah, I figured they didn't have any sort of simulated gravity on on the space. If you station. also, if you go back and look at videos of uh, the astronauts coming back like from the original missions when they had to splash down, they had to be carried out of the pods just because yeah. everything atrophies. Right. Um, so yeah. On so the yeah. What are you gravity talking about? Gravity thing. Yeah. I kind of lost myself. Like I, I, I guess not lost myself. I kind of found myself when they were in the space station. It was very obvious. Like, painfully obvious to me because i've seen astronauts in space that they were just on wires like the way that they're they were moving it was very very obvious to me that they weren't in space and that kind of took me out of it okay Hmm. compared to a movie like gravity where that was very well done like they it 
I don't know exactly how they filmed it, but it that really felt very real to me. Whereas this, it was way too easy for them to just like stay in the center of a big tube, just like pushing off and then floating right down the center of a tube with no oh, okay. gravity. Like that would be crazy hard to do. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Um, in in general, they I was listening to some people discuss um, ca- like specific uh, cast and crew members talking about gravity on Mars, and basically they just decided the scenes on Mars. They just decided to go with Earth gravity, yeah, and because it would be really difficult, and people wouldn't really notice the difference on uh, having like, but they said Mars has about forty percent, thirty five to forty percent the gravity that earth does and they tried to explain it away by saying oh you know he's wearing a spacesuit he's wearing like 30 or 40 pounds of equipment so eh, it's close enough but like they they also made the point like when he's in the the habitat the habisphere it uh he's not wearing any equipment and he's still just like walking around normally i didn't think it was that reduced on mars yeah, i guess just the density small. of mars is enough to cause the gravity to be less like size-wise, is fairly close to Earth, right? No, Venus is close. Mars is quite a bit smaller. Is it? Yeah. Hmm. I thought it was the other yeah, way so, around. Yeah, I, hmm. I thought Mars was fairly Earth-sized. That's why it would make a good candidate for colonization, but I guess no. not. Okay. Yeah. So, go, yeah, anyways, on to your next, uh, or if yeah. you have more to say about gravity. Yeah, that that was kind of the main the main thing, just the sequences, and I guess the other part when they're outside of the spaceship, they were still like Rhea found this kind of mind bending how like they're going the same speed, so they can just just hang out next to the ship even if they're outside. Like they're still ripping through space, but yeah, there's no air resistance to push them back or anything like that. So that was kind of cool to see that you're just kind of outside your spaceship and hurtling through space. Yeah. Um. The other part was, I know one of the hurdles of manned missions to Mars is just the, like, Mars not having a magnetic field. So it's very susceptible to the solar radiation. A very weak one. Very weak one. I believe. Very weak magnetic field. Does it? Yeah. Okay. In any case, they're a lot more vulnerable to that kind of thing. And obviously that wasn't, that didn't play any part in, in the movie. Right. Um, but I don't know. Overall, it's a very good movie, very well done, and yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah. So, they, Rob. Yeah. Have you seen the movie? I've seen the movie. Yeah. Would you have rather seen the movie and then read the book? No, I I really liked the book a lot. I, I thought the movie did a very good job of telling the story. But I really, really like the book. Okay. You know, because I've, in my experience, I've preferred watching the movie and then reading the book. And a okay. lot of it was based on Michael Crichton's work. Mm-hmm. But I always found that I would read the book and then get so hyped for the movie. Right. And then the movie would inevitably disappoint me. Right. Because they're working with actual film and not your imagination. <laughs> yeah. I And so I've... I've always, always tried to watch the movie before reading the book because even like major spoilers or twists and stuff like that, I've found the director has been like, no, we're going to do this instead. And it's right. Yeah. 
Yeah, the the movie, the major plot points and twists and kind of things kept very close to the book, but they surprisingly enough, uh, Mike, there's a lot more that goes wrong in the book. Than oh, really? Goes wrong in the movie? Oh, cool. Yeah. Maybe I should. Yeah, I'll definitely just read the book then because it. Wait, the thing in this movie about space exploration, something goes wrong. <laughs> oh, several things. What a spoiler! <laughs> Jeez, God. You don't get stranded on a planet with things going correctly. Yeah. <laughs> he got stranded? <laughs> That's, it's the first two minutes of the movie. <laughs> Spoiler central here. Jeez. Uh, spoil the preview for you. Yeah. Oh. Now I but know yeah, about I, the poop potatoes. <laughs> well, there's potatoes. That's That, that was in the preview too. Or at yeah. least the growing was, but. They were saying pretty much every major plot point was in the previews. Yeah, yeah it was. Although well, you wouldn't necessarily know yeah. it. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Be a, cl- yeah. a flash of it, yeah. yeah. But overall, it was very accurate, and scientists, NASA scientists, have been saying that the whole time. Um, obviously, they're take, they take some cinematic uh, leaps. Liberties? But... Overall, I think it was very good. The one thing that I did want to mention, and this is something that when I first read the book, I was curious because I'd been reading about film and how in the U.S., like big Hollywood movies, try to have something in them that appealed to China so that Chinese audiences, which is a huge movie market now, will want to go and see it. So they try to portray China in a positive light. Right. In the in the book, in the story, there's interaction between NASA and the Chinese uh, space agency. And it's quite different the way they're portrayed in the book versus the movie. And the movie okay. puts China in a lot more positive light. Okay. And I thought that was an interesting choice. And I, I see why they did it, again, because they're trying to appeal to it. But basically... Yeah, the China, the Chinese space agency plays a very positive part in the the goings on in the movie. Whereas in the book, they're kind of a roadblock for a while. Okay. And it's just an interesting choice. But right. again, that's a, the kind of thing that it doesn't really impact the story as a whole because it plays out the same way. But there's a lot more. There's a lot more time spent on the politics and the science of the story in the book than than you're able to see in the movie obviously it was a two and a half hour movie and they left a bunch of stuff out so you can only do so much i really liked what they did focus on though that that being said there were if they spent a few minutes on something it was it was good yeah yeah anyways that so i would definitely recommend reading and seeing the martian it was it was a very good book and a very good movie yeah it's very good in 3D as well, if you have a chance to see it. Yeah. It was in the AVX theater as well. So Yeah, I saw that the same one. Sound and shaking and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, the next thing we have here is from Mike. And you found new, or <laughs> you found, you found an article about uh, new evidence for early humans. Yeah, there's, I don't know, it seems like there's a lot of anthropological discoveries lately. Yeah. Uh, we had just talked about uh, Homo naledi, and now there's evidence of 
migration patterns for uh, for early humans, early modern humans. Uh, there's the out of Africa theory or hypothesis that we're kind of working with right now. And we're still trying to put pieces together. Well, not we as in we, but people, scientists are trying to put pieces together on kind of exactly mapping out the progression of that migration. And prior to this discovery, the earliest evidence of modern humans in South Asia were about 45,000 years old. And they just discovered 47 modern human teeth that date to at least 80,000, if not as old as 120,000 years old Wow! Uh, in this part of China, where prior to that, there's 45,000 years. So it kind of adjusts their view of the migration pattern. And I don't, I don't have a perfect picture of the exact mapping of it, but before they didn't, they kind of went from Africa then into kind of Europe and Asia, South Asia at the same time. But now it looks like they kind of got into South Asia first and then provide a competition to the Neanderthalus population that was there. And then once they kind of were able to lay their domain there, it allowed for migration into Europe and uh, Western Russia. So Hmm. yeah, it's, Consequence-wise, I don't know exactly what this entails, but it kind of adjusts the the thinking on how the migration pattern worked. So it's just kind of another piece of the puzzle that was found, and now they're trying to piece it together and how it fits into everything. So it's I've I'm always very intrigued when I read about kind of early human migration and how that all works because. It's just it's fascinating to me, and it's it's cool to see that we're still making discoveries on this. And uh, what would you say the mass of these early humans would be in oh, kilograms? No. We're doing this again. <laughs> it's about yeah. one person's worth, about or something. oh, cool, yeah, around there, plus or minus half a person. That's a really good unit to use, yeah. I think, to describe people. Yeah, I th- I thought so. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, I wonder how you define that. <laughs> Yeah, I was reading some of the comments or just other articles on this, and there was some discussion about the way they dated these teeth. And I guess you can't use carbon dating, so you have to use sediment dating, where you're radioact you're detecting the radioactive uh, residue or elements within the sediment found around the teeth versus dating the teeth themselves. Okay. So I'm I'm not super familiar with how that works, but apparently it's potentially less reliable than carbon dating where you're directly detecting the the element itself, like the piece that you found. But this is kind of the only real way to date a lot of archaeological discoveries is the sediment dating versus dating the actual thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean... It it leaves the possibility that the teeth were moved, right? That's kind well, of the thought. Not only that, but just it, just the dating might not be reliable. Like it, yeah. it could. But again, I've, I'm not an archaeologist, so I can't really comment on on dating methods and that kind of thing as well. But it sounds like they're probably dating it the same way they date everything else. So at least if they're consistent, then relative, they should all be the same. Like, yeah, they should all be out by the same amount if they are being dated the same way. Sure. Fair enough. Yeah. 
Uh, Nick, you have a story here, and I don't know why you are. You drank too much coffee this morning. I think you you have everything yeah, you been... everything you wrote's all caps. Everything you wrote has an exclamation point and a question mark. But uh, why don't you no, tell no, me what you not learned the about the kilogram okay. story? It just has an exclamation point. Fair enough. Why don't you uh, tell me what you learned about antioxidants this week? I learned that antioxidants can help cancer. That that doesn't sound good. Help cure cancer? All cancers. And apparently it's a broad spectrum. Like, all cancers can be affected by like this Like, it makes mechanism. cancer worse or helps no, it, cancer develop? It it helps cancer develop. Okay. So, they did... This was a study out of somewhere. Don't remember. But it made the journal Nature. So, that's exciting. Okay. And apparently it is supported by one other study in which they, in which they uh, looked at prostate cancer in mice. And... It appears that if cancer, if, you know, you already have cancerous tumors and you are fed a diet rich in antioxidants, um, so like the oxidative stress is where you have free radicals in the body and those free radicals damage cells and the cells are then repaired, life goes on. But... There's a lot of people who are really big fans of antioxidants because they prevent this damage from happening. And they're saying, you know, there are all these sorts of benefits, you know, diet rich in antioxidants will help you in a multitude of ways. But it would appear as though the oxidative stress that affects the rest of your body also keeps cancer at bay, if only slightly. And so it would appear that antioxidants, the presence of antioxidants in the diet helps cancer cells more than it helps your cells. And so lifetimes were significantly reduced in cases of cancer with diets rich in antioxidants. This is only if you already have cancerous cells, right? Yes. Because my understanding was antioxidants are favored to prevent cancer not necessarily to cure oh cancer. that's another like no i know it's another thing on its own but well that i i know but like because that's been you know a whole thing oh antioxidants you'll have yeah. a lower risk of this and that and that and that and cancer and it's like well yeah but it makes any cancer you have significantly significantly more lethal yeah or so it would seem and the other thing is I think we talked about this on an earlier episode, but it's actually shocking the number of tumors you actually have at any given moment. Yep. And the human body is just surprisingly good at getting rid of tumors. Is that like the stat where you eat seven spiders in your lifetime or something like that? No. I think <laughs> That's this real. one is based on better science. <laughs> yeah. <Okay. laughs> and not just like, well, I don't know, you fall asleep with your mouth hanging open, so I mean, whatever. Or... <laughs> Yeah, okay. But yeah, I just thought that was really interesting because antioxidants are so often held up and championed and put on a pedestal as this great thing. And now it's like, well, that's an interesting little development. Yeah. That's, uh, I've always thought whenever I hear, and antioxidants first kind of came into, I don't even, it was probably 10 or 15 years ago, 
the people started talking about antioxidants and curing or not curing cancer, but preventing cancer and controlling free radicals. But every time something like this comes out, I just think, uh, I don't think it's as good as you say it is. And as it turns out, maybe these are, they do have some small benefit, but they also have this downside, possible downside. And so everyone wants to keep doing research and keep getting funding and all of this. But really, I don't think you should eat, I mean, eat macronutrients, but I think things like antioxidants, things like uh, any any superfood that purports to have these massive health benefits probably isn't as good for you as health food stores and the scientists that that work on them think they are, or that they they don't end up being as good as that. Mm. And so the fact that this is now also showing these possible negative effects and possible positive effects for specific cancers or specific tumors doesn't really surprise me that much because if it benefits our cells, cancer cells are still human cells. They've just been tweaked to multiply faster. So it doesn't surprise me that they might also benefit from it. Yeah. But I thought that was, I don't know. I just came across that one and went, what? So, I mean, given how publishing on health studies works, we now have a couple papers confirming this result. So we'll wait for final judgment four or five years down the line and see if we start getting, you know, a plethora of studies uh, negating this hypothesis. Right. But, yeah. Kind of terrifying. Just a little bit, right? Yeah. Okay. All, uh, all things in moderation. Is that our verdict it, here? Exactly. Except uh, self-driving cars. Cars should always be self-driven, I think. Absolutely. I see no reason not to allow those on public highways. Exactly. And it turns out that Ontario is actually going to be the first Canadian province to allow the testing of self-driving cars. <gasps> Which I'm is so proud story. of my. I, I'm so proud of my home province. <laughs> After and Rob's home province. What it can't I be guess, yours and his home province. Yeah, he was it, born in Scarberia. Yeah, I was born there. We just talked about this. <laughs> Did we? So we talked. Uh, Mike and I talked. I guess it was last week about Tesla's autopilot update that came out on this past Thursday. Yeah. Uh, and so Tesla cars, if you have the Model S. The, the more powerful model, I believe, is the only one that got it. It will now, you can now turn it on autopilot and it will drive itself. It will change lanes. It will speed up and slow down as necessary with traffic. And not to be outdone by several provinces in the, or several states in the US, Ontario has decided to allow the testing of self driving cars on public roads uh, as of the first day of 2016, January 1st. And I am so excited about this. I don't know how licensing works. Like, I know that, for instance, we don't have things like Apple Pay uh, in Canada. There, there are lots of country restrictions where... Are we still talking about the, that? Yes. People in the U.S. <laughs> don't... Are, they get these things that we don't get because of licensing issues, because of governmental issues. And I don't know how it works with self-driving cars. I don't know if... Can it, did Canadian... Tesla's not get this update because self-driving 
vehicles aren't allowed. Like, I don't know how it works. Yeah. Because if it does work that way and that Canadian drivers also got it, are they operating illegally because it hasn't been allowed anywhere yet? Right. And so basically what this does is I think Canada doesn't want to necessarily get left behind in the self-driving car thing. Like several states now allow self-driving cars on on highways and they allow testing of self-driving cars as long as there's a driver in the in the driving seat. Um, but the, the, they talk in this article that I have here from The Verge about how for the most part, it's very good weather conditions that these cars are tested in places like California, like Nevada. Uh, Michigan is the only northern state that allows it. And so that's the only place where you would ever be able to really test things like ice and snow, which are some of the worst driving conditions and some of the things. I was going to say, and yeah. depending on which part of Ontario you're in, oh, that yeah, can get exactly. hairy pretty quickly. <laughs> So I think that's going to be a huge help to the self-driving cars in that their biggest hurdle right now is that they're only good in sort of perfect or just maybe less than perfect conditions. And hopefully being able to being able to drive through Ontario winter, if you can survive that, you can do anything. And so self-driving cars, I think that might be their biggest test is going through on Ontario heavy snow winter. And so I'm really interested to see how this how this plays out. I was going to say some great testing grounds would either be northern Ontario where the snow shows up like mid-October and is just there until spring, Mm -hmm. which, you know, happens mid-June. And or like the far southwest where you got those wicked snowstorms. Just intense. That'd be that'd be really interesting. Yeah. I don't know if you remember the snowstorm they had. Uh, it's probably a while back now, but the there was one snowstorm that actually dumped over a meter of snow in the really far southwest. Yeah, and yeah, people driving on the four hundred one down there just had to abandon their cars because <laughs> it just accumulated so fast right. that there was nothing they could do to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd want self driving vehicle ability in that type of weather though no i would why would you like because people are stupid that's why i i i think human judgment of road conditions is still better than a vehicle right now but that's why we're trying to improve it maybe if you can quantify it in uh you know i don't i feel like, like kind of I feel reading like the reading the friction factor of the road and visibility and all that kind of stuff, then yeah, maybe. If all drivers are experts at driving in snowy or icy conditions, I might be inclined to agree with you that we should take this really slow, but people are unequivocally terrible at driving in ice and snow. And so an algorithm that knows how to do it properly would win every time. If If it doesn't reduce actual collisions it would certainly reduce the severity of those collisions. Yeah, if you could get the algorithm to the point where it was able to to quantify that, which is what they're well, I think trying the biggest to do, strength. Right? I think the biggest strength of an algorithm is that an algorithm is never in a hurry or yeah. and never in a rush. So the algorithm can recognize an, an oncoming like traffic signal change and go, "No, running this light would be a stupid idea." Whereas you know, people 
have are very important and have very important functions to get to. But if it's a kind of thing where the algorithm wouldn't be able to detect the road condition to give itself twice as much stopping distance as normal. The, but it would. Well, yeah, ideally. How can it not yeah. read that though? Like is the road to, white but to quantify or is it, it black? It's not really the only indicator. But it would be able to judge. Like I think having having systems, high-tech systems on a car would enable it to judge like it would be able to use how the tires are are interacting with the right. pavement or ice or the road surface whatever it is and be able to judge and tell whether or not it should be in that high high warning mode and you could even have something like one of the big things that happens is you hit a patch of ice and you just slide out and at that point you're either going to hit something if it's there or you're not if there's nothing there where and i think you can have a kind of system where if you're driving up to an intersection and suddenly the light change well not suddenly but the light changes you put on the brakes very gently and you just slide you just don't slow down at all in the current situation, the other drivers would have to be aware of that happening. And if they're if they're in the path, try to get out of the way. But if you had a fleet of or if every car had some sort of smarts in terms of self-driving, if that as soon as that car's brakes locked up and started sliding, it could send out a warning like, I have no traction right now. If you're in the way, like move or don't go. Like it would it would at least be able to alert i'm just sensing every if every car was networked like that you wouldn't the accidents would be a lot more easily avoided because first of all you wouldn't get into those kind of situations where it could happen but if you did one car could instantly alert a bunch of others to be like i'm completely sliding out watch out like that would be so cool it would be really cool like you could even have the cars automatically move out of the way also very skynet why are you saying it like it's a bad thing? <laughs> Machines talking to each other? They could plot against us, Rob. They already do. <laughs> it's already happening. No, I, 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 I hear I, what you're I, saying, though. Yeah. I've, driven through, I've driven through a lot of poor weather in Ontario. And I've been around a lot of other people in poor weather in Ontario. And I... I would much rather see everyone being controlled by robots mm-hmm. or uh, all the vehicles being controlled by robots. Yeah. I'm totally fine. If we maintain sentience, <laughs> I was going to say, it was an interesting Freudian slip there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> robots don't hurt me. Robots are logical. <laughs> robots are our friends. So, <laughs> I'm interested to see how this plays out, but for now, we're just waiting to see how te- self-driving Teslas get along, and we're going to wait until January to, to to figure out how self-driving tests in Canada are going to go. We're going to be in the heat of winter, and uh, I mean, I'm interested to see how that's it, how an it ironic goes. phrase. <laughs> yeah, the heat of winter. The only problem I could see with self-driving cars in winter is not being able to see the lines because that is a huge issue. Yeah, that was our first thing but, I thought. Slash it would be difficult, an entire yeah. lane usually disappears because there's half a lane's worth of snow on either side of the road. It depends on where you are. Calgary, a lane always disappears. <laughs> but yeah, until there's a Chinook. Yeah. So, but sensors... it's, a, it's a very different winter environment, Mike. I'm telling you. <laughs> I know. I live here. <laughs> so, yeah, but, yeah, okay. Current systems. Current systems are based on 
lanes where yeah. you where a car is looking for lines and judges where it needs to change based on where the line is but future systems or self-driving car systems wouldn't have to be based on that car like google maps already knows how many lanes a road has they know where the lines are even if they're not there and so you could program a system into working whether or not there are any road lines i feel like they should be able to to detect obstructions though yeah yeah exactly like a snowbank a snowbank or uh, a highway divider like you'd be able to it would be able to know where it is on the road based on where everything else is not with that kind of precision without being able to actually visually like optically detect the line again i still think it's better than current like current drivers are you saying they can detect the line if it's not no but drivers just fall into line with the rest of traffic and cars do the same thing cars could intelligently reduce the number of lanes virtually and like only if there's a three-lane highway and it's all covered in snow they could virtually give themselves more space and just align into two lines instead and give these extra wide lanes they could do that you could design a car network that would be super cautious and able to drive in snowy conditions. In Canada, cars drive you. <laughs> Mike's just trying to come up with titles. Is now. that what you're trying to say, Rob? No, that would be Soviet Russia. But but uh, well, I'm sure Soviet Russia has similar road conditions. Yeah, it's past tense now. Yeah, I look forward to a future where nobody has to drive. I'm uh, I'm very interested for this future. I was driving through highway traffic on uh on wednesday and it was not it's not fun at all i have to i have to be a robot driver i have to let people in ahead of me just so they don't plug up the lane at the point where they have to merge at the very last second i yeah driving is the worst and if i could have a robot drive for me all the time no matter how long how much longer it took i would absolutely do that i would leave earlier if i need i would need leave twice as early if i could be driven there by a robot car Absolutely. Can you imagine like Uber and autonomous vehicles? They're working on it. Believe me. I believe you. I, yeah. If I'm just having this idea now, I I think they literally would be shocked are if they hadn't already it. had it. Yeah. Uh, did you see that those pictures of the Mercedes that was just driving around by itself in like California somewhere? I don't think so. Oh. Apparently Mercedes is working on it too because there was just one of their high-end luxury vehicles that was just driving around driverless one night. Yeah. Yeah, it was either Uber or Lyft that was actually investing in autonomous driving. And they're like, oh, this is against their business model because they rely on drivers. But that's not a They rely on people paying to get somewhere. That's what they rely on. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, all right. So we'll move on for now. But there's a lot of very interesting discussion to be had as this plays out. Um, Nick, you have a story here, again, with an exclamation and a question mark. Uh, There's a new coffee tree species. There's a new species of coffee tree. Mm -hmm. You're correcting my grammar. A new coffee tree species is how your title (laughs) reads. New coffee tree species? What? (laughs) So what is this new species? It's a completely new species, Rob. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So get, we should move on. Get us. I got nothing. I, I don't have a whole lot for you, but like this, <laughs> this is really exciting news because coffee. I, I, I appreciate that you won't understand, Rob, 
But people like Mike and I realize that Kay. coffee is a very big deal. Nick, yeah. maybe you can shed some light on this. What are the current or previously known species? Is that Arabica versus whatever the other one is? Arabica versus Robusta. Sure, if that's how you pronounce it. And I'm trying to pull up the link. I don't think it's, it's Arabica, that's for well. sure. <laughs> I'm also having some connectivity issues, so I'm barely aware of what you're seeing, what you're saying. Interesting. Yeah, Honduras has a national park and the new coffee species belongs to the coffee family and it's gone. I was reading the article and it just like, nope, I'm going to update and there it is. The coffee family <laughs> Rub- Bissier, according to a paper published in the journal Phytokeys. That prestigious journal. Yep. Man, it's just, I, I, I want to know what it tastes like. It's like the woolly mammoth burgers. So uh, you didn't ask my question. Is this adding to the Arabica and Robusta families? Like this yes. is the third because type. Those are those are the other ones that we use commercially for right. coffee. Okay, but man, and it, they've they've only found two trees. They're about the same size and within a few feet of each other. And but this could so be far. the next step in coffeedom. How did these come about? Is this were these modified genetically to be different? No. This is this is in a national park, so it's just this is nature. Just natural selection. Yeah, they well, just found like, them. I don't know if you're familiar with the history of hot peppers, but they're entirely native to the Americas. But uh, the early explorers took them from the Americas and dropped them off in Southeast Asia, basically, and they started growing them around there. So what ended up happening is you got these entirely new species of pepper because you just started growing these seeds in an entirely new environment, which was favorable to pepper propagation. And all of a sudden you wind up with the Thai chili or the Bujolokia, which, I mean, it's not clear because of the, you know, history books being what they are. It's not clear whether there was extensive human intervention in that or whether it was just the result of natural mutations, natural selection, just like natural selection pressures at work. But you just get entirely new species every once in a while because Mm -hmm. of evolution and mutation and things like that. So this is, I imagine, much of the same thing. It just, all of a sudden, you got a new kind of coffee tree here. I'm going to come out and say I probably wouldn't be able to taste the difference. <laughs> You're just a negative Nelly today, Mike. <laughs> yeah, you are. It's it's a little strange. What's in your coffee, Mike? Did I'm, I'm drinking a Starbucks dark roast. Did someone urinate in your coffee this morning? No. Are you positive? Yes. I can you say that angry. My, my bag of coffee is 454 grams. Wow. Oh, good. That's almost half a kilogram. It is almost half a kilogram. Maybe. How it's, would we it's, know? It's almost one it's, pound, even. It's almost exactly one pound. <laughs> the pound, of course, 
being defined in metric units now. Yep. Boom. So, so yeah. So like, I are we still going to talk coffee about coffee trees, guys? Okay. But, yes. So Nick, Nick, you Rob. there's only two trees so far. Arabica and robusta. No, Arabica no, there's only being, two of these. Oh, two of these kinds of trees. Yeah, look, like because the big problem in coffee right now is uh, the shade-grown stuff. The Arabica is the really good stuff. That's what we in North America really liked it down. Mm-hmm. And robusta, I imagine naming being named because they're robust. Don't have to be shade-grown on a on a valley or on a slope. They can be grown in open fields. They don't taste nearly as good, but you have that yield. So I'm wondering, like, where could these new trees be grown? Does that open up new cultivation off options? Does that help at all with the coffee shortage we have? Are we going to take these seeds and send them to Svalbard <laughs> so that we can potentially hybridize them with uh, with new coffee trees if we have a pest outbreak? You know what I'm thinking, Nick? Obviously, I don't really care, Rob. This is exciting. No, 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 I know. I'm not. I'm not trying to take away your excitement. But right now, there's only two trees discovered so far. Nobody has, as far as we know, has ever tasted coffee brewed from these this species of tree. I know, and I desperately want to try it. <laughs> but you'd have to. You'd have to grow new trees. They're talking about how it's critically endangered, or it must be critically endangered, in that there, there's this such a limited population so far. But I would think that you would have to take the lead and take a sample of it to grow your own trees. That would be amazing. You must reach out to these researchers and do this. I don't see how you couldn't. All right. Uh, we, I don't We could have lost Nick. <laughs> I got His it. connection's fine, but... <laughs> Guys, I got to go. I got, <laughs> I got some phone calls to make. What's the dialing code for Honduras? I have no idea. Where is Honduras exactly? Somewhere in the Caribbean, I believe. I, I was going to say like South Central America. Yeah, I think. yeah. You're deep. Well, I'm a bad person. North, North South America. <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah, South Central, North South. Oh man, it's it's montane rainforest vegetation. We we don't have montane rainforests here in Calgary. Or in Alberta, but we do have montane regions. What Ooh. if we could tr- grow coffee in Alberta? That is the stupidest thing I've said all podcast. <laughs> I wouldn't I'm not have sure known. It is. No, I, I. Yeah, you've been talking about the kilogram a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's that's uh, roughly as exciting as this. No, it's far more exciting. You guys are just jerks. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll, we'll move past coffee for now. Although, Nick, feel free to bring this back up in future episodes. Uh, Absolutely, I will. A new smartwatch that's on Kickstarter, Mike. Yes. While we're all waiting for our modular phones to hit the market, people have decided that the modular smartwatch is the next big thing. And this company has released a Kickstarter initiative for what they're calling the Blocks modular smartwatch. And it's roughly how a, many, uh, roughly how many kilograms? I would couldn't you say tell you. I'd have to look that up myself. Oh, okay. less than one, I would hope. I around, yeah, definitely <laughs> one would less hope, than yeah. one. <laughs> There's, uh, it's pretty much exactly what it sounds like. Actually, it's it's not because when I heard modular smartwatch, I was like, that would be a giant watch. 
but they actually what is more similar to the smart band idea but they're turning the smart band into it's basically a modular band so you, you have your main watch circular watch part that has the touchscreen display uh, your Bluetooth and Wi-Fi connectivity, uh, your activity tracking, and your battery. That gives 36 hours of battery life. And then you can purchase... Your watch band is made up of modules that have, say, NFC, um, SD storage, a fingerprint sensor, extra battery, what have you. Just extra features that wouldn't otherwise be included in the watch. And... They're saying that the larger bands or larger wrists can hold four modules and the smaller ones would hold three. And that's kind of the idea behind this. So it's, I I don't know how much of a market there is for this kind of thing, but obviously people find it intriguing enough to back it on Kickstarter. But yeah. I don't know. What's your what's your take on this? Is this something that you feel the market needs? So it it seems like something the market needs. I don't know if you have looked at this Kickstarter. I didn't look at the Kickstarter page. I looked at the the night of Google link. So there is still thirty two days to go in this campaign. I don't know how long the campaign was when it first started. Yeah, but uh, it had a goal of a quarter million dollars, and it's at. <laughs> It's at almost $900,000. This is a massive Kickstarter. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. For such an unknown small company. Yeah. Well, that's that's the whole point of Kickstarter. I, yeah. I'd imagine. Um, it doesn't actually say what company it was. Is it a company called Blocks? The Blocks Wearables, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so... But, I don't know. I'm I'm skeptical just because it's still just a kickstarter Mm -hmm. like i know when people were first back in pebble their idea of what it would be like i think was a little bit different like the concept drawings and renderings were a bit different than what the actual device ended up looking like but i think i don't know it's i don't feel that the smartwatch market is restrictive in variety and capability that you'd need a modular smartwatch. I guess it's the kind of thing that, you know, if you wanted a heart rate monitor module in certain times, you could swap out the modules and Mm -hmm. not have it if you don't need it. Or you could attach your extra battery modules if you wanted an extended kind of battery life. But it sounds like the extra modules you can add on aren't, don't add all that much to the watch capability wise. Right. You know, if you can add in like a three G radio as a module, that'd be good. But I don't think you can. At sure. least not right now. So this is interesting to me because Mike, you well, I've talked a lot about how I, I am interested in getting an Apple Watch. Yeah. You have talked about how you're interested in getting a smartwatch, but you haven't so far, at least to my knowledge, found one that actually fits all your desires. This The Gear S2 is kind of that smartwatch. But it's uh, b- it doesn't run Android Wear, so I'm I'm skeptical of buying into that. 
but the reviews for the Gear S2 have been pretty good so far. And that one has a 3G version that will be coming out. Right, but this, so this watch would enable you to get everything you need as long as you have a giant wrist. <laughs> you could just attach anything you wanted. Like you can get the GPS that you wanted. You can get the, like you can put a SIM card in. There's a SIM module. There's Why would you need a SIM card in your watch? To connect to data and all that. Or, or sorry, I see SD card. Where does it say you can put an SIM card in? It's on the picture on the Kickstarter thing. You can get a yeah. fingerprint sensor. Like I'm looking at all these different modules. There is a flash module as well here. It looks like. Um, it it doesn't look to me like these. The watch itself has a ton of uh, actual smart capability. Like it doesn't look like it would connect to a smartphone or anything. No, it it has it has the Bluetooth and the Wi-Fi. So the Bluetooth yeah. can connect it. But it doesn't like the at least the the interface doesn't look like it has much room to display like maybe that's the same thing android wear does but like it doesn't seem like it would function that well on its own as that display you're seeing is a like it's a digital display yes it'll display yeah i don't maybe maybe i'm just very skeptical of spherical or not spherical uh circular watch faces displaying digital information i guess scrolling down more there there is stuff you can do I'm interested because it doesn't it doesn't run uh, it doesn't run Android Wear it doesn't run no it works with apparently the Apple uh, the iPhone and Android phones yeah. but I, I'm I would really have to see this like the, for 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 me this wouldn't really work because I'd really have to see how it works and how it looks it looks very nice uh, as a watch. But I, I would really have to see how it goes uh, in terms of functionality. I'd have to see it in action before I could actually buy into it in any sort of way. Yeah, like, I don't know, at this point, I think I trust the, the Android Wear and even the Tizen watches a bit more than kind of this one that, as far as I can see, it runs a proprietary OS. Yeah. But they They are trying to ship in May of next year. Which is interesting, for sure, because uh, most Kickstarters don't meet their shipping date, and this seems really, they have a a pretty sort of set timeline, but I don't know if they're, it seems like a very big concept in order to ship in such a short timeline. Yeah, it looks like the only modules they have available right now is the extra battery, heart rate, GPS. NFC and altitude pressure temperature mm-hmm. as a single module. And then the planned modules is the SIM card, fingerprint, LED, and a programmable button module. Right. Which, that's a little weird. It, I guess, oh, there's a camera one there too. Yeah, that's the, that's the phase three future. So that's the future future modules. Right. Cool. I th- I think it's a good idea, but I I don't see it catching on that much. Right. I, th- I think the smart yeah. bands hold a lot more potential just because of how easily they integrate with just any watch that could integrate with it. Right. 
Sure. I get that. Yeah. But it is, it is very interesting. So, um, the next story you have, we have here is also, well, actually Mike has, has the rest of the stories on the way out. <laughs> we have, uh, we described this as we were starting the show, uh, as a clickbait headline, but why don't you tell us what, about what Netflix new movie is doing? I didn't even realize Netflix was releasing a movie, but mm-hmm. it turns out they are. And they're not only are they self-producing a movie, but they're actually going to be showing it or wanting to show it in theaters, like brick yep. and mortar theaters. and surprisingly enough a lot of theater companies don't want to show it i don't know why um but yeah their their idea is that the theater's idea is that because it's not their own movie or because it's available on netflix people won't make a point to go watch it in their theater Mm -hmm. we've talked about before how people are changing and how they go to movie theaters because of streaming and online movies how people don't really go to movies or a certain part of or a certain demographic doesn't go to the theater to watch a specific movie they'll go to a movie or go to a theater because they want to go out and they'll say okay what movie should we watch and they'll pick a movie after already deciding to go to a theater who does these things i do (laughs) really yeah well because i only ever go to the theater with a specific movie in mind see and i don't I don't go to enough movies to be able to see all the movies I want to see. So when yeah. we get a chance to go to the movies, it's like, hey, let's go. Let's pick a movie. Mm. If we don't see anything we like, then sometimes we'll say, oh, well, let's not go to a movie then. But we don't say, uh, actually, the last one, The Martian was kind of the one that were like, hey, we want to go see that movie because it looked pretty good. Mm. But usually we'll say, okay, let's go to a movie and then we'll look to see what's playing and just pick one that looks marginally promising so i don't think that the fact that it's available on streaming isn't a good enough reason to not show it in theater yeah um, i mean show it on one screen see what the reception is why yeah well like we we talked about this when they released the what was that one called with james franco james franco the interview know. is it the interview if if I am correctly guessing oh, where you're the, going with this, the North Korean one, yeah, 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 yeah. So that one was was released online as well as in theaters, yeah, and it was moderately successful, just mainly because of the hype around it. But sure, it it was kind of a proof of concept, and I think this is a natural thing. Is you know you release a movie unavailable for streaming, but also in theaters for who want that theater experience, right. Because there is something to be said for having that theater experience. Oh, there is. Like the Martian wouldn't have been it. Yeah, the Martian would have been the same seeing it on my forty-inch TV versus full three D in the theaters. Yeah. So. I don't know. I'm I'm a big fan of going to the movies to watch a movie. Oh, I agree. To the theater. Just because I don't know the sound. It's immersive. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I like the idea of the fact that they've done, I mean, Netflix has done a bunch of stuff with some pretty high profile names and this movie is no different. Idris Elba is starring in it. I don't know who that is. He is, he was talked about at, he was in the, 
at least I believe. I haven't seen The Wire, but I'm pretty sure he was one of the guys in The Wire. Uh, but he was being poked as the next uh, James Bond for a while. People were talking about oh, yeah. how it would be really cool to have him as James Bond. Okay. Uh, but so he he has quite a bit of star power along with his name. He was um, He was on The Office as... When they were looking for a new, a new boss. guy to replace yeah. Michael, he was he was there for a while. Was he? Yeah, he was the he was the boss. He was the he was uh, the guy from corporate that came in. To oh, oversee like the, the guy from Saber? No, before that, the black guy. Yes. Oh, okay. I know who that guy is. Um. Yeah. So he, he he's got a lot of star power with his name, but um, it's gonna be interesting. Like. I'm interested to see this movie. I don't know that I would go and see it in theaters, but I might go see it with Netflix. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Nick, I really like what you're doing here, trying to keep the <laughs> glare out of your camera. Thank you. It's called commitment. Yeah. So we have one more story here, Mike. Why don't you uh, take us home with this kind of, I guess this is more of a lighter story. It is. I came across this and it was weird because I actually had a dream about this at the night that I read it. It was weird. That so, there's this little Easter egg that Google hid in their Android Marshmallow landing page. That if you go into Inspect Element and hide something, and this image shows, and there's a link here that you can go look at it. But it's essentially a URL puzzle where it has a G dot co, which is Google's URL shortened version. And then below it has a chemical equation and it's uh, C11H22O11. And then what is being said is theobromine mm-hmm. is the other chemical there. Or C- C12H22O11, sorry. And then uh, C7H8N4O2. And that's kind of the the puzzle. Because if you punch that in as URL, it doesn't take you anywhere. but there's a uh, another part in the inspect element code that says, "Don't you wish you knew s'more?" Yeah, don't you wish you had s'more? Or don't you wish you had s'more? So right. there's an an initiative to figure out what this code is. There's a crowdsourced uh, little page for people that have tried various variations of the URL and trying different, trying to solve the puzzle, I guess. Mm-hmm. And as of right now, no one's figured out yet. And no one knows what's what, behind the surprise. What really drives me nuts is that when we were talking about what Google's M project might be, I distinctly remember yelling out marshmallow at some point in the middle of right. it. But in listening to yeah. the episode later, I realized my mic was muted. I thought you guys had just like <laughs> straight up ignore, ignored me yelling <laughs> nonsense in the middle of the episode. But... <laughs> Yeah, that's, oh, that's funny. good. That that sucks. It's yeah. not on the record. We believe yeah. you, though. Yeah, I do believe Thanks. that sounds something like something you would do. Although, if it's anyway, you're saying it's C12 H22 O11, which is, and you hear that, and you're like, "That's great! It's got one degree of unsaturation." Damn right. it! I mean, that's it's. They're saying that's sugar. Yeah. The hard part is the other one. Well, no, they 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 figure it's theobromine, and they're they're saying it 
hints at chocolate or cocoa. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they're like, okay, well, it's sugar and chocolate. So people are trying to figure out, you know, OG.co slash hot chocolate, G.co slash Nestle, and then just various words that could fit that puzzle. But right. no one's been able to figure it out yet. I mean, is it possible that that is it? No, oh, well, people tried that and it doesn't go anywhere. What do you mean? What do you mean? Now I'm confused about what, what the Easter egg is. To figure out what the actual URL is. That's not the URL. That's, that doesn't go anywhere. Okay. So it's, there's an additional puzzle. The one is that there's this hidden image. Mm-hmm. And then the other is figure out what the actual correct URL is that takes you to the whatever the surprise is. Or... Okay. Interesting. So it could just be that Google's trolling everyone they've done before so right i wonder if it's like one of the specific sugars you find in marshmallow or something like that mm -hmm. in the actual plant but it must have something to do with chocolate too if there's that second like if you if you guys go to that there's like a doc spreadsheet that has a ton of different urls that people have tried right Mm. so People have tried marshmallow, right? Uh, you'd have to look, but I'm assuming, yeah. <laughs> like, it would seem bizarre if they hadn't. Uh, yeah. People okay. tried mallow mars, mallow, mars, marsh, marshmallow, marshmallows, melty goodness, milk chocolate, mocha, moon pies, Nabisco, Nescafe, Nesquik, Nestea. Because they're thinking N-words, right, for the next version of, of right. Android. Uh, Nestle, Noisette, Nougat, Nutella, Nutmeg, Oreo, Peeps. Like, right. They've, et okay, they're trying. Yeah, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So <laughs> you almost just need to kind of uh, brute force it and just try everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. Okay. Dictionary and M-words and pretty much yeah hmm. all right well uh we'll, we'll keep an eye on that and if if you come across the solution let us know yes not not listeners but i'm i mean listeners fine but i'm talking to mike oh, right now i thought you were talking <laughs> <to> listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right you guys have anything else to add this week nope that I think, uh i think we're, we're pretty good yeah at everything you guys i think are jerks. that that means it's the saddest I, I actually I want to talk about something. I want to talk about something in the after show, maybe. Okay, sure, we'll do that. Okay. We're having an uh, after show. My goodness, <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> wow. Uh, so that being said, thank you for listening to this week's future chat. As always, um, Audible.com is uh, is one of the companies that supports our show, and you can help out our show by going to audibletrial.com/unwind. That'll get you a free thirty day trial of Audible's audiobook service, and as well as a free audiobook. So. Uh, Head there. They've got lots of good, cool science and tech books you can uh, you can read. You can use to try out the service. And I'll let you know we'll be back here next week with more science and tech talk. You can subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio and iTunes. And find past episodes of the show and more at unwindmedia.com slash future chat. See you next time. Ciao. Bye. All right. What do, you, what do you got, Mike? So have you guys heard about Uber coming to Calgary? Yes. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this, actually. Yeah. I I just basically forgot to put this in the notes, but 
it could be more after show material anyway. So yeah. I tried downloading the app and it worked, but I couldn't link my PayPal account. I don't know, Nick or Rob, what you guys use with. I use a credit card. Oh, you just put your credit card in. Okay. I might have to end up doing that. PayPal seemed to be like, oh, well, if it doesn't work, just use your credit card. It's like, that's not <laughs> a solution, guys. But I got to say, what I guess really, there's a big uh, kerfuffle. Really, sorry, what really jumps out at me here is uh, when I hear Uber now, all I can think of is Macklemore's song Downtown. You okay. don't need Uber. You don't need a cab. F a bus pass. You got a moped, man. <laughs> and that's where I'm at. What was that? What was that other song that was released? It was like that one that I mentioned you and Rob about that Uber, that Uber rap or something. You I mentioned me in a song? It was, no, I, it was on Twitter and I retweeted it and said, oh, Rob, this describes you guys in Ottawa. And it was like, oh, girl, you can take an Uber to my place or something. I don't know. You'd have to look I, it I have no recollection was, of this. It was a parody song. Anyway. Okay. The reason I'm talking about this is because I think Ottawa still has the same issue, but technically Uber isn't allowed. Like the bylaws prevent or suggest that ride sharing isn't really an allowed practice. When yeah, they can it. be fined if they're yeah. caught. Yeah. So Calgary's the day Uber was released, like launched in Calgary, the city of Calgary Twitter account was just tweet after tweet of anti Uber right. slash pro taxi tweets, which is very strange. And, it was and very yet, strange. <laughs> and yet the Calgary transit app publicly right. advertised Uber as a transport option. Well, <laughs> it's funny because the transit, like, so I don't know if you guys use the transit app. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. Uber was just integrated into that app and the Calgary transit was just a red colored transit app. Like yep. it did, it wasn't mm. customized in any other way. It was just red colored. And okay. then that's why it was in there. And then the day that it was released, that Uber was released, it's like, Oh, you guys are advertising Uber. It was doing that all along. Yeah. It's just that day. It's like ironic because they're saying you shouldn't be using Uber, but you guys probably have the Uber integration into the transit app already anyway. Yep. So, um, but yeah, there's a, there's a whole big thing about it. And Brett Wilson of Dragon's Den fame is very pro Uber, which is good to see, but I, I'm glad Uber is in Calgary and I'm excited to try it. And I know you guys in Ottawa are very big Uber proponents. I, I noticed that even Mr. Nenshi was against Uber. Well, he has to be. Does he? Yeah. He's a face yes, of Calgary. What, why is it? Why does the face of Calgary have to be against something? Because his bylaws say that. But he could say, let's change the bylaws. No, he, he is saying that they're looking at being more accommodating to it, but he still has to say, until we figure out some regulations for this, they'd recommend not doing it. Kind of like. It's not illegal to take an Uber, it's illegal to be an Uber driver. Right. But you're essentially. I thought in Calgary it was illegal to take an Uber. No, the, the whole thing behind taking an Uber is their insurance may not cover you if you get into an accident. Mm. So that's that's that whole issue. It's not the legal aspect; it's more the insurance aspect. Because in Alberta it, specifically, yeah. Alberta insurance regulations prevent 
the extended coverage that Uber offers to cover you for personal insurance if you're ride sharing. Mm. Right. In the sense of paying for someone to drive you somewhere that isn't a licensed taxi, which is stupid. There, there's no reason for that. Right. I, the thing that I don't get about this whole, every time it comes to a new city, they have the exact same fight and it always ends up the same way that Uber just gradually integrates into the culture until you end up with this massive war between cabs and Uber. Why don't you just come out ahead of it and say, we're looking into this, um, be aware of the issues and do what you're going to do. Like people are going to try to save money if they can do, if they can use this thing, especially if they've heard about it in other cities and heard people have good stories about it. It just coming out as right away being against it, as opposed to being like, this is a new thing and here are some of the issues with it. It just seems very short sighted and like it we're repeating the same errors or the same misjudgments over and over again this this is a thing that's happening in every city yeah it's just weird yeah it's so and i mean maybe if they wanted to really fight uber they should make the cab system better yeah like yeah and i actually saw a tweet and obviously it's anecdotal evidence but they're downtown calgary and it's like oh yeah you know it's busy down here but you see cabs everywhere like just available and I was saying, you know, if if Uber's presence encourages better cab service, then that's kind of the whole point. Like, yeah. that's what market competition yeah. does. So I think it's a win-win either way. If I honestly, even if Uber isn't ever, you know, quote unquote legal, if it encourages better cab service, then I think that's, I'll take that as a win. Right. Not that I take cabs regularly, but. I've had my own bad experiences with cabs, just not showing up or I've heard of really bad cab stories as well. So right. both passengers and drivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a fundamentally flawed system and to, to have it propped up by things like taxi unions and local government just seems weird. Like you're not even going to try to have a, a better, possibly better system. You're just going to say, no, let's stick with what we have and not allow anything new or different. Yeah. Weird. Those times when you just cannot, for the life of you, get a cab when you really need one. Yeah. That builds character. That's an important experience. <laughs> is, it, is that what be yeah. walking home from 16th Ave and 10th Street to 56th Ave and Ebenezer Trail? Well, that's uh, at, that's at 11 o'clock at night. That's part of being a, a, a Calgarian, Mike. That's we're true. A, we're a hardy bunch. We don't we don't <laughs> let something like cab unavailability slow us down. Yeah, that's true. I, I've made that walk too, actually. Yeah, I believe probably. Yeah, actually, though, that yeah, I went to Mike's house from downtown. <laughs> Didn't that take you like a day? Jeez, it was like a couple hours. Yeah, I like walking. You didn't even use the c-train like spend the three bucks to get c-train to- doesn't go, go that way it? it goes south i mean i no my old house six north oh okay yeah 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 sorry it's okay but take take your first uber it's free yeah you just have to link a card yeah yeah anyways yeah. anything else you wanted to to say this week that's all I got. Cool. Nick, are you satisfied? Honest, I'll I'll drop some personal news. Um, you want me to stop the hangout? The no, the <laughs> buchalokia I was growing 
okay. all summer has died. Ah, the what? Had it out on had it out on the uh, on the what do you call it? Balcony. Butuloka. Butulokia. I don't know what that is. Ghost pepper. pepper. Colloquially. Colloquially. Oh. But good news. Um, I was growing one down in the southwest, or rather, a friend of, well, Kai's family member was growing one for me, and it didn't do nearly as well as it would in southern Ontario, but it did okay, and it's now here. It's sitting in the south-facing window. I thought I was going to have some some more uh, peat gnat issues. Honestly, it's terrible. Like... <laughs> The all the potting mixes here are really peat heavy because Calgary is so dry. And then winter rolls around and it doesn't dry out nearly as quickly. And it starts to rot and attract these disease carrying insects that killed my first pepper. So I saw them at first, but they seem to have subsided. I'm starting to coat the top layer of it in used coffee grounds to try and help dry out that top layer quicker so that, uh, you know, discourages them from showing up again so here's hoping i think you can get the peat free soils can't you the issue is like easily and without a car oh just grab a couple handfuls right yeah you guys have you have gardens i think isn't like centennial gardens like right near you Uh, i'm not sure where that is by like the high school by western canada high school over there, 17th Avish. They have gardens. I don't there. know. There's Central Central Memorial. Oh, maybe that's one I think you have gardens. Yeah, but yeah, I could just take a spade there. Yeah, that's... you know, no one would mind. Huh. Not at all. Yeah, I'll just go down to Princess <laughs> Island Park and dig up some of that stuff. Yeah, it's probably good. Olympic Absolutely. Plaza. Olympic Plaza probably has some gardens there. Oh yeah. All Jeez, good I should have just asked Mike about this first. <laughs> none of these are good solutions <laughs> speak for yourself all right i guess that brings our broadcast to a close thanks for uh for listening those of you who are still here because they do exist so thank you for listening uh and enjoy the rest of your week <laughs>